0: Hi. Before we get started with the show, I just wanted to mention two things real quick. First, this is a long show, and you don't gotta be a hero. There are natural breakpoints, so, you know, stop when you need to stop, drink some water, and pick it back up when you're ready. Second, Hail Mary Digital is an independently produced podcast, right? Like, I'm not on a fancy podcast network, and the show isn't ad-supported or anything like that. Now, I'm not looking for support, but if you do enjoy the program, I'd ask that you consider leaving a donation with the Sandy Ground Historical Society. Sandy Ground, which is located right here on the south shore of Staten Island, is the oldest continuously inhabited free black settlement in the United States, and was a station along the Underground Railroad. The Historical Society offers workshops to students across New York City, and they even maintain a museum here in the community. Every dollar helps them continue their work of telling their story. If you're interested, there's information in the show notes and on my website. Anyway, here we go. got a story. And no, I don't necessarily mean it in the big cliche, we've all got a story to tell kind of way. I mean, I'm sure we all do, but what I mean is, we've all of us each got that story. I'm talking about that story your family whips out anytime you're trying to introduce someone new to them. That story they claim is charming or endearing, but isn't. That story that gets told in the late, sacred hour of thanksgiving once everyone is wine drunk and two slices of pumpkin pie into dessert somehow that story always grows in the telling too the details evolve and are squeezed for all they're worth and we can just forget nuance because the stakes are only ever biblical in that story the thing is though we should be honest about that story it's usually the tale of some boneheaded, stupid-ass thing we did. We were young and naive, and it's not so bad that it left this demerit on our permanent record. It's more like a tiny smudge of permanent marker on our soul. And hearing that story retold, that's the price of our penance. We deserve this. We have to sit there and own it and endure until it's mercifully erased from living memory. Which is bad news for me. Because I'm about to share my version of that story. There will be heroism, mystery, courage, espionage, romance, and daring do. So buckle up folks. This is how I ruin the cruise.
1: I'm pink. Hit
2: it. You're listening to Hail
0: Mary Digital. That sounds pretty religious, doesn't it? I'm also not wild about the acronym HMD. Episode one, Scribbled, or How I Ruin the Cruise. All right, let's set the stage. We got to rewind back a little bit. That story takes place in 2006. Okay, so here we are. It's February 17th, the Friday before President's Day week. And here's everything you gotta know about where I'm at in life. Number one, I'm 12 years old and in the eighth grade. Number 2. Last fall, I played defensive end on my football team at the Staten Island Boys Football League, or the SIBFL. My team, the Saints, of which I was a captain, made it all the way to the senior championship game against the Hawks. On the last play of the game, I had the most athletic moment of my life, pivoting to set the edge and forcing the opposing quarterback, Nicky Barber, into a last-ditch Hail Mary pass. Of course, the Holy Mother, should she exist and concern herself with the outcomes of middle school boys football games, does not intervene against the Saints. So the wide receiver drops it, we win the game, bring in the dancing lobsters. Number three. Let's not get the wrong idea, however. I'm no athlete. I am a huge friggin' nerd. My AOL screen name is JediRanger57. And for Christmas, my cousin Angela got me a hat bearing the eponymous character from the Flash animation website homestarrunner.com. I love this hat and will live in it. Until one of my dogs eats it a few months later. Number 4. 47 days from now, I will play my first rock show, The Talent Show at IS34. I'll wear an American flag bandana because I saw Eddie Van Halen do that in a video on this new but slow website called YouTube. My band opens the show with American Idiot, and in the break after the solo, when I'm not playing my bass, I will start clapping. And the crowd will start clapping. And I know in that moment, I'll be chasing that kind of power the rest of my life. Number five. The number one song in the country is Beyoncé's Check On It. I absolutely do not have the resources to license that song. So instead, I got my best friend Sean to record a version of it. Okay, so. My family was going on a cruise in February. I just mentioned that I'm from Staten Island, which is in New York, and I already know what you're thinking. Isn't it freezing in New York in February? And you're right. In fact, only a week before, a blizzard dropped more than 30 inches of snow on the city. But thankfully, we're not sailing out of New York Harbor. Instead, we're sailing out of Fort Lauderdale with our eyes set on the sunny Caribbean, baby. That's right, we're heading to Jamaica, and we're heading to, and we're heading to, and this should be your first clue about how much this story, uh, how much that story has clouded my memory. I can't even remember where we went on the cruise that I ruined, but whatever. Anyway, so we fly down on the 17th, but the cruise itself doesn't start until the next day, Saturday the 18th. Let's call this day zero. We'll be hitting the high seas on a massive liner called the something of the seas. I don't even remember the name of the boat, all right? I have a photo of the ship, and in the photo you can just make out the name on the side, the something of the seas. And I thought this is gonna be a bit of easy detective work, right? I just have to go through the Royal Caribbean fleet and see which one ends in of the seas. I had a bit of a snag, however. See, all of their boats are something of the seas. There's liberty of the seas, adventure of the seas, quantum of the seas. I don't know. I wouldn't be making such a big deal out of this either, but that story takes place on a ship. And just the nature of storytelling requires that I refer to it, like, a lot. It needs a name, so let's just pick something. Oftentimes, when one of my friends are talking, someone will say something unintentionally wicked, and then one of us will jump in and claim it saying, that's the name of my band, and that's what we need here. What would be the name of like a kick-ass, epic, prog, metal band? How's the Parallax Collapse? Yeah, that works. So again, my family, my mom, my dad, older sister, fly down on the 17th, but we don't make it onto the parallax collapse of the seas until the next day, day zero. We're also not alone. We're on this vacation with another family, the Baljonases. What this means is that I'm on vacation with one of my best friends in the whole world, Eddie Baljonas. What's up, brother? Oh my god. How are you? <laughs> I look like a mess, but I'm all right. <laughs> Do you want to jump into it? Yeah, let's get into it, man. Right.
1: Um, so I bring you up more often than you think, Bry. Right? <laughs> I tell people the idea of our family growing up with another family. I tell people that often because I think it's actually like uh, very profitable. You're a, you are, you and your family are a big aspect of my life. We kind of grew up together, but more so because our sisters know each other. Mm-hmm um they danced together which was cool and then we danced together <laughs> yes we which did. is uh cool
0: um, <laughs> <laughs> that went, uh, so hey we good. were listen listen we I were great it, to be we quite, were great
1: yeah to be quite <laughs> honest with it but the memories aren't bad like there are a couple bad ones but like <laughs> overall like i appreciated the idea we play football together mm-hmm. that was a hell of a time yeah um and then again to speak to our families kind of growing up together, that brings us to the cruise.
0: Yeah, and, no, and, and I, I want to just say, like, yeah, it's amazing that we were so intertwined, like not only because of our sisters, and then it was just like...
1: Like a lot of the aspects of our lives that, that those formidable years yeah. included both families, for yeah. sure.
0: I hope everyone has an Eddie in their life. We're going to be hearing more from him. The Parallax Collapse is an impressive ship, or, Maybe not. I really don't know. This is the first and only cruise I've ever been on, so I've got nothing to compare it to. Maybe they're all this surreal. Who knows? But it looks to me like it can topple over at any moment. A fear that does not abate after the five-minute safety orientation they force us into five minutes before we say bon voyage. Whatever. On the top deck, there's a pool that will be filled to the brim with strangers from now until we return to Fort Lauderdale in a few days turns out, the deck of a cruise ship is not all that different from the New York subways in the summer, just this museum of knees. There are also shuffleboard spots on deck for the super old folks, and a rock climbing wall for the younger ones. There's actually even a topperer deck, above the pool level if you can picture it. Mainly, it's these two narrow bridges that span the length of the ship along its sides. They're curvy and they have these installments that look like white spatula wings. Inside, there's a casino that I will not be allowed to take more than two steps into on account of being, you know, twelve, but the casino is connected to a larger central meeting room atrium area, and it's kind of huge and layered and multi-depth. Everything in here looks like it's made out of pure white marble, and there's a zillion chairs. From the sprawling atrium, you can also make it into the dining area, which itself is kinda nice. And even then, it isn't enough to fit everyone on the ship at once, so they divvied us up to eat in shifts. I mention this because it's slightly important later on, so don't forget it. So that's the first day. We do the safety orientation, we eat. Maybe we do a little exploring, try to commit different routes through the ship to ram, you know the drill. Anyway, it's pretty big, and it's pretty cool. I remember walking the deck at night, just before curfew, and seeing lights from the other ships on the horizon, perhaps brothers and sisters to the parallax collapse. But anyway, we're all exhausted, we go to bed, day zero done. Sunday the 19th, day one, already my memory is hazy. But I believe it's gonna be a full day out at sea, casting Florida to the past, swooping around Cuba, and heading down to Ocho Rios, Jamaica. This meant that all the adventure and fun from this vacation was, at least for the day, gonna happen on board the Parallax Collapse. Well, for everyone but me. My sister and Eddie's sisters were teens, and snotty little brothers were not to be seen with them the duration of the trip. Which like, I get. (laughs) There were events specifically planned for preteens, though. You can probably imagine what they were, some kind of ice breakery type things, maybe some kind of bonding scavenger hunt, who knows. Not me, I didn't go. I'm a fairly introverted guy now, with a ton of anxiety, social or otherwise. Back then, I just called it being unbearably shy. And I hear you, how could I be the captain of a football team and play in front of dozens of people and stare down linebackers without any fear? And the answer is, I didn't like doing that either. I had a lot of fear. But at least when you're playing football, you've got a whole helmet and mask over your face. When you're just talking to people, though, that's a whole other ball game. I mean, really, is there anything more vulnerable in the whole world than just looking at someone? Plus, I was set. I brought a book with me. Naturally, it was a big, chunky fantasy novel, the second book in the inheritance cycle by Christopher Paolini called Eldest, which, for those that need a recap, sees the armies of Galbatorix attack the Varden. Our hero, Aragon, faces off against a mysterious dragon rider that turns out to be Murtag, who, spoiler alert, is his brother? Are you kidding me? And then just to add insult to injury, he takes Aragorn's sword, Zurok, The whole series is about dragons and it's widely considered to be this low effort amalgamation of Star Wars and The Lord of the Rings. But listen, true or not true, you gotta remember that I was in the eighth grade. Put another way, this was it, right? This was perfect. This was the stuff. So I was perfectly content reading my sophisticated 700 page epic, only stopping for meals and, I suppose, to, you know, relieve myself. Socializing, No thank you. Thank goodness for Eddie though. He had enough social capacity for the both of us. Whatever events they had planned for us preteens, I'm fairly sure he went. But even if he did, I wouldn't have heard about them until the next day. Monday the 20th, day two, Jamaica. I believe we wake up here. We end up spending the whole day on the island. We hit Dunn's River Falls nice and early. We eat local. At some point, we come across a guy playing the world's most beat-up electric guitar, missing strings and all. But he's busting out these amazing Elvis covers and saying, thank you very much, man, after each one. So typical vacation stuff. That night we're all beat, we go to bed. Tuesday the 21st, day three. We're still in Jamaica, and we'll be for at least another few hours. So we hit up Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville. People, they have a bar in the pool. But by noon, we need to get back to the boat so we can make it to our next destination, which was. That's the thing. Is like I don't. Even, I know we went. Me- we went to Jamaica. Jamaica, I remember. I don't remember where else we went. Like I know we went somewhere. Cayman else. Island. Cayman Islands. Cayman Islands. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. I have a shirt. <laughs> I know. And I remember Michael Jordan's at the Cayman Islands while we're there. There's a casino that my dad, cause like, uh, I think we were like going to try to like gamble together, like mm. joking around playing right, some slot right. machines. There was a casino. Um, and we go to the casino and it's closed down and a bunch of people standing outside of these windows. Cause Michael Jordan had rented out the entire casino. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Oh, cool. Like, it, but that was a better part of it. Like,
0: right, that right. was better
1: than like me betting my dad's 25 25- sense, that was the best. <laughs> yeah. Seeing like something close down for Michael Jordan. Oh,
0: that's cool. Thank you, Eddie. This, night three of a five-night cruise, is when the dominoes that will ultimately culminate in the ruination of this trip begin to set. How so? Well, by now, I'd for sure finished my book. Or, in other words, I no longer had any excuses to stay cooped up in our tiny cabin. My parents were going to make sure I went out and enjoyed myself, damn it. So I really didn't have a choice. I might not want to go meet the other preteens aboard the Parallax Collapse, but again, worst case scenario, at least I had Eddie. So I was good. I was golden. That first officially sanctioned preteen event took place in the ship's game room arcade. I don't remember it being all that impressive. Maybe you could win candy or play skee-ball to your heart's content. It's all a colorful, noisy blur. Regardless, that had become the de facto meeting place for the preteens. What was immediately clear though, was that we were not there for any corny, cooked up events. Eddie was introducing me to a pack of rebels. I only remember a select few from the gang. There was me and Eddie, duh. Then there was a tall, dark-haired girl named Sarah, no H. She might have actually crossed that sacred threshold into teendom, and she certainly seemed to be the wisest of the bunch, but she chose to hang out with those of us that were more her crowd. There's also a girl named Caitlin, and it was immediately clear that Eddie had the hots for her. Or at least I remember them being a flirty pair.
1: There was a girl on a trip that I like was really interested in. I don't even like, I was in sixth grade, so like, I don't remember, I don't even know what her name was. But I remember there was like a girl that I was with the whole time. What were we all hanging out? Was it like that? Did we just like make a community out of those, out of our peers, which is like often what we would do, right? We're gonna make friends with similar interests and peers and like, you know? Um, and like, I have no idea what anybody's race or ethnicity was. I couldn't even tell you what someone's face looked like at that time. <laughs> like obviously just you. I don't remember what Sarah or possibly Caitlin looks like. <laughs> no idea. Uh no idea. And a uh, slight memories of possibly the girl Caitlin, but barely.
0: Beyond that, there's just one other girl. Another
3: Sarah.
0: Very funny Sean. No, for eighth grade Brian, who played upright bass in the string orchestra at school, it would have been something more like this. This Sarah, who did spell her name with an H, immediately, I don't know, ensorcelled me. She had these stormy eyes, big duo Jupiters, and I was caught in orbit. And if you could make her laugh, the lines in her face were, yeah. But that was just the start. Like I said, I was the newest recruit in an ongoing rebellion. We weren't hanging out in the game room. We were gonna go hang out in the lounge. We all crammed into an elevator, covered wall to wall in mirrors, which made it easy for everyone to Google everyone else, and rode up to the ship's penthouse. I was already nervous kids were definitely not allowed in the lounge aboard the parallax collapse. And I can assure you, a rule breaker, I was not. And yet, nobody stopped us as we stepped into the lounge, so we went in and hung out. We all just scattered about, lying on the largest, comfiest couches you could possibly imagine. This is when and where I was brought up to speed on everything I'd missed the first few days and nights. Everyone's name, where they were from, How they were enjoying the cruise. If they'd seen that guy playing Elvis tunes, and yes, they had. How could you miss him? At some point, it must have come up that I was a musician. There was a piano in the lounge, and of course, I noodled around a little bit. I'd taken lessons when I was real young, but I remembered the basics. A few chords. Trying to be real slick, right? But then Sarah sat at the piano, and that was talent. Real talent, with fire coming out of her fingers and the whole thing. She was a musician? What the fuck was I doing alone in my room reading a book when I could have been here with her? I didn't have a lot of wit or charm, but there appeared to be a connection between Sarah and me. i never really hit it off with someone before, but here I was. And that's the scary thing about liking someone, even today. When you're in it, you just know. My brain might have been running at max capacity, all my neurons firing off at a million cycles per second. But the result was somehow somewhat natural. I didn't have to work to say the right thing. I just did. Confidence bred confidence. But (laughs) I was getting so far ahead of myself. I don't think I would have been so brazen to even try and show off if I hadn't been real with myself from the get-go. I liked Sarah immediately, but I also knew that there was no way I was ever going to be able to tell her. And even if I did, she probably wasn't going to like me back, this kid in a Homestar fucking runner hat. And even if I did tell her, and even if she could, against all the odds, put aside my innumerable flaws. This was night three of a five-night cruise. The voyage was already half over and soon I'd be going home to New York and she'd be going home to whatever faraway state she came from, probably Alaska. And here's the other thing. Eighth grade was not too early to start quote unquote dating. Like, of course, of course I would have done anything to be somebody's boyfriend, to be their guy. There's a lot of responsibility in being someone's guy not unlike being a football captain, Strangely, but you wanted to be in that role, wear that badge. At that time though, it was scary. I mean, it still is. Cause either you're gonna last forever with someone or not, and both of those outcomes are terrifying in their own way. And like, this is going all the way back to the start, the height of my stupidity. Becoming someone's boyfriend, it had never happened back home. Just never worked out with anyone, not for real. Why would this be any different? Why should it? And yet, when you fall for someone when you're 12, it's not like at any other point in your life. There's just magic. It's irresistible. You want to tap into it. And you don't know what tampering with that magic means, all the risks and the rewards, because you just don't have the experience yet. You just find yourself in a position like I was, where everything was only ever theatric to the fucking extreme. I was living and dying with every new fact I learned about Sarah. How everything about us seemed to line up. Anytime that story gets told, it's important that the oft-repeated salient details get real hemmed up for dramatic effect. In this case, it means giving Sarah real depth as a player in this tale by recounting the small details. You know, what made her her, a real life person. And that's how I can tell you about Sarah, and do it with certainty, even though the things I learned about her that night, I learned 14 years ago. Details like Sarah's favorite song. At the time, it was The White Stripes' My Doorbell. It's how I know that Sarah was seriously into her art, drawing, painting, illustrating. I have a very vague recollection of her just doodling on some napkins or whatever, and it being clearly evident she was brimming with yet another talent not that I was surprised. It's how I came to know that actually, she didn't live too far away. Stayed away, sure, but that was it. One state. My mind began to run. Maybe. Just maybe. Nope. Nope. Stop it. There was no way. No way something was gonna happen. Or could happen. I was mature enough to recognize the situation for what it was, and besides, maybe I can make a new friend and that be it, right? We departed the lounge a little before curfew, and I swore to myself I wasn't going to rock the boat. Lord knows I was convinced a small breeze could have knocked over the parallax collapse. Didn't need my help. So that was that. I was going to be content. Day four. If only I could have kept content. All morning, my mind was split between dodging stingrays in the clear waters off the Cayman Islands, and ways in which to woo Sarah. Even Eddie could tell something was afoot. That something was brewing. But what was I supposed to do? Talk to her? No, 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 no. Listen, if this was going to happen at all, and this was still a big, gigantic, fangorious if, I needed an extremely elaborate, overthought, exaggerated scheme that would net me all the key information I needed to know before I made what would be a perfectly calculated move in my favor. I didn't make the rules. That's just how these things were handled in the 8th grade. We had a civilization. There needed to be a sense of care and a sense of grace. I mean, really, just talking to her? Are you out of your mind? By the time I made it back to the ship later that day, I had it all sussed out. This couldn't be me. And Eddie would have done fine, I suppose. But this was sensitive intel. I needed someone on the inside. I needed the other No-H Sarah. The other No-H Sarah was a saint in the truest, non-football sense of the word. I broke it all down for her. That Sarah was really cool, and she was into cool music, and she could play piano and draw, which was really cool. And should she choose to accept this mission, I just needed her to, you know, casually drop that into a private conversation, the other No H Sarah to Sarah. No big deal, take your time, but also report back to me as soon as humanly possible. The other No H Sarah was game, and she was off. It is at this point in that story that I remember the rival entering. I don't remember his name, just that he was younger than the rest of us, he was short, and that he too was crushing on Sarah. This operation was becoming less and less covert by the second. Equipped with the knowledge that I was making a play, the rival confronted me. This kid claimed that he liked Sarah, and that she liked him back, and that I'd better stop whatever it was that I was up to or else I'd be sorry. I left him off. Whatever was going to happen between Sarah and me was going to happen or not. But who was this? And what was he going to do? Maybe he just wanted to speak his piece before he no longer had the opportunity. I don't know. I left him alone because, frankly, I had bigger fish to fry than this minnow. And what did I have to worry about? In big mythological tales such as these, Huber's hardly ever has its moment. Right? I don't know exactly how long I waited, two, two and a half centuries, but eventually special agent other No H. Sarah pulled me aside for a debrief. I wasn't expecting a good news, bad news situation, but that's what I got. Let's start with the good. By some miracle, by some strange confluence of events, Sarah did indeed like me too. And like, a lot. And I was just like, what? But then there was the bad news. She did like me, but just as I'd been fretting about what would happen after this was all over, she was too. I lived all the way in New York. How was anything gonna work? Again, in eighth grade, relationships couldn't have felt more like everything when they were in fact these mere vacant vessels. And that was in the best case scenario. Long distance relationships were unheard of. It never worked, so What was the point? To my surprise, I was actually relieved. I'd cooked up this undercover gamut and it went off without a hitch. The girl I had fallen for had fallen for me too. And the key reason why I was ultimately reluctant to do anything was also her ultimate reluctant reason not to do anything. Like our own little Oh Henry-esque twist, which in a sort of irony only served as more proof of our same (laughs) wavelengthness. This is almost definitely a better way to say that, but you get my point. The whole gang met up again later, and Sarah and I talked. There was no reason to keep anything secret anymore. We reaffirmed everything we'd said through our intermediary, and we were on the same page. We agreed that this sucked, unquestionably, but ultimately the right decision was not to pursue anything. We would ride out the last day on the cruise and enjoy each other's company. Everyone's company. And that'd be that. We'd just talk about music or whatever. I don't really care so long as I could, and for as long as I could, feel trapped by the tug of Jupiter's A and B. Day five. I don't know what changed overnight, but the other No-H Sarah sought me out as early as she could. She had to tell me something important. Sarah changed her mind. About what? About dating and about you becoming her boyfriend and her becoming your girlfriend and to hell with all the space between the two of you starting tomorrow. Really? 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 (laughs) Really? I had to find her. Sarah. Fuck the no-running policy aboard the Parallax Collapse. I had to find her fast. Let's be real. In my heart of hearts, I honestly truly didn't care either. I didn't need to be convinced into trying to make this work. However, we had to. Whatever it would look like. Anything it would take. I found Sarah in the lounge, alone. Just me, her, and that piano she'd smoke. All the stuff the other No H. Sarah had told me, was that true? It was. Would she like to, you know, go out? She did. She smiled, and again, the lines on her face did that thing they did, and I knew it was me that had made them do it. And just like that, I was somebody's boyfriend. Wait, 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 hold on. Here we go. That seemed like a lot of immediate pressure, like there was an entire butterfly colony jittering within me, but it wasn't too much to handle, not even close, are you kidding? Once everything was official, Sarah and I hugged. To this day, it remains one of the most distinct hugs of my life. It's quite possible that neither of us had ever touched anyone like this that wasn't a family member. So it ended up being more like we were bowing to each other. The hug was so weird. I can only imagine what it must have looked like on a security camera. Stories are conflict. And conflict is just intentions versus obstacles. Characters are motivated to succeed in their goals and the way they overcome their foils, that's the interesting bit. That's the thing that compels us. If the intention and obstacle are balanced, such that the stakes get raised at just the right moments, then the story has a certain kind of inevitable thrust to it. Done poorly, then the story feels meandering, anticlimactic. So you must be thinking, huh, seems like you and Sarah kind of just dropped the obstacle between the two of you. You just decided to ditch it. And you're not wrong, but here's the thing. We haven't yet hit the real conflict in that story. Sarah and I becoming an item is not what ruined the cruise. Not directly. But we're nearly there now. Have some patience. Shortly after our awkward hug, the Rebel Alliance was forever banned from the lounge by cruise officials. God bless them. I can only imagine how annoying a pack of preteens must have been the past few days and nights. These roaming hooligans wandering the halls at top speed, riding the elevators with the million mirrors up and down and up again. They claimed they needed the lounge for some kind of flag ceremony, but really, any excuse would do. I mean, make no mistake, we were punks, so why would we listen to their authority starting now? But it was a fight-or-live-to-fight kind of situation, and we figured it was probably best just to get the hell out of there before we were all made to, you know, walk the plank. This part of that story becomes a bit hard to remember. For one thing, it was the final day of our Caribbean journey. The Parallax Collapse had to whip around Cuba's west coast and zip us back up to Fort Lauderdale by 7am the next morning. This was another whole day out at sea, and I'm sure there was tons of packing and last-minute to-dos to do whenever we weren't all, you know, being a nuisance, rousing rabbles. For another, my memory might just be crowded out by everything that came next. I wish my recollection was of spending mountains of quality time with Sarah that last day. It isn't. I mean, could have happened, who knows. I know we saw each other at least briefly, because at some point she had to go meet up with her family for dinner. Her family's shift being different from mine. And see, I told you that was going to be important. But we promised we'd meet back up later in the game room to say goodbye to everyone and each other. And so she left. I continued hanging out with Eddie and Caitlin. They'd become their own couple in all this, too, and I had a hunch they were, get this, making out with each other. Could you imagine? But I had the other Noh Sara to hang around with, too. True OG. At some point, we were just looking to kill some time. This being the last night in all, they'd literally scrubbed the deck of the Parallax Collapse. That meant that it was real easy to get a running start and slide across the deck, risky business style. You could go 10, 15, 20 feet depending on how fast a running start you got beforehand. This was so obviously dangerous. Sometimes the only thing that stopped us was ramming into the safety railings on the side of the ship. But like, duh, (laughs) that's what made it so fun. So thrilling. And what's the worst that was going to happen? I was going to get in trouble on the last night? Big deal. I was changed. I was brave. I started this trip shy, and now here I was, leading an actual charge. I have one strong image in my mind from that moment. So strong that, ironically, I don't even know if it's real or just some nostalgia implant that my brain is fabricating. But I'm sliding across the deck. I cut through the warm wind. We started sliding around dusk, but here we were near and out to twilight the stars started to show. Not a lot, but enough. The perfect amount. The sky was a mix of orange and pink over the dark ocean, and everything was just right. We got shut down not long after, of course, and they told us in no uncertain terms that curfew was coming up soon and it would be strictly enforced. No problem. I just had to meet up with Sarah and say goodbye and then I'd get back to my cabin. Simple. I went down to the arcade where kids were getting their last games in and waited, minding my own business, recounting the whole week with the other No-H Sarah. We talked about the strangeness of it all, how everything came together so fast. The twists and turns, how exciting it all was. How we were all gonna miss each other, and how it seemed so weird that we'd all become good friends despite knowing each other only a short amount of time. How we were all gonna keep in touch and chat and call and friend each other on MySpace. Things were starting to get shut down, but there was still no sign of Sarah. Where could she be? Was it possible she had last minute stuff to take care of with her family? Maybe they didn't want her out wandering the boat anymore. I had no way of knowing. All I knew is that it was getting late. Brian, you idiot. Why didn't you just shoot her a text? Look, I don't think we exchanged numbers yet. And I'll get to that in a minute. But folks, even if we did, did you forget that we were in the middle of the fucking ocean? People still had cell service in 2006, Brian, even off the coast of Florida. Okay, but even if we exchanged numbers, and even if she had service, my family were early T-Mobile adopters. Those that know, know. But for everyone else, let's just say the T-Mobile coverage back then was not unlike Sarah in this moment. Lacking. My point is, not I nor anyone else could just give Sarah a buzz to see what was up. Where she was, was a mystery. That story has been told many times over the years, like I said. But as a collective oral tradition. Never from my point of view alone. In fact, this is the first time I've ever committed it to paper, sparing no detail. Seriously. I mention this only to say that the act of doing so has been odd. So many infinitesimal details are cropping back up that I've not recalled in the 14 years since this all happened. For example, up until a literal minute ago, I lost sight of the fact that I'm pretty sure Sarah told me what her cabin number was, her family's room on the parallax collapse. Or maybe as a group we all knew, perhaps we met up with her there one time or something. Point is, I have this vague inkling that that was information at my disposal. And that would have solved my predicament. I could just go to see if she was in her cabin. We could say goodbye, do the whole bit, the end, right? If only. You might be asking, why does it matter? Why am I even mentioning it? And I'm mentioning it because if I did, it makes perfect sense as to why I ended up with the note. Let's talk about it real quick. The note. I'm sure there was everything you would expect there to be. My home address on Staten Island, my home phone number, my cell number, my screen name. I'm sure I also attempted to write a message to Sarah, Scribbled out my first love note. You can conjure in your mind the romantic delicacy woven together by Jedi Ranger 57. Ugh. Can you imagine what sort of woody? endearing sign-off I tried to come up with? God, I hate even thinking about it. Anyway, we'll get to why the note is crucial to that story in a second, but in all the tellings before this one, I never had a clear, concrete motivation for writing the note. I always just had it at some point. It manifested itself into existence, which, come to think of it, is maybe something that happens a lot on the quantum of the seas. I don't know. I can think of two equally likely scenarios that could have played out. The first being that I wrote the note and went down to Sarah's cabin to give it to her, but chickened out. If I know anything about myself, that tracks. Because like, what if her parents answered and not her? I would have shriveled into a million pieces. And what were we going to do if her parents were right there? Bow hug again? No way. That's why the note was perfect. I wanted to make sure she could keep in touch after the cruise for, you know, obvious reasons and a note was clean, it was quick, private. The other likely scenario is that I said to hell with all that and summoned the courage to knock on her door, and nobody was there. Maybe their dinner ran super late that night? certainly possible. Regardless of how it played out, I always wondered why I had to write the note in the first place. Strange how the mind works, isn't it? Whatever happened, happened, or, you know, didn't, or... Both, if we were on the quantum of the seas. But in either case, I ended up back upstairs, near the game room, going over the note, nervously folding it over and over again, adding crease after crease, spinning the pen in my hand, waiting, waiting, waiting for Sarah to return. We were getting dangerously close to curfew at this point, and the crew wasn't screwing around when they said they'd enforce it. What could we do? At this point, I must have called an audible and decided that we'd be better off if we all split up. I think that's because Eddie wasn't with me at this point. Maybe he was out looking for Sarah, maybe he was smooching Caitlyn. I guess it's possible to have done both of those things at the same time somehow, but as I write this out, it's it's dawning on me. He was probably just smooching Caitlyn.
1: But I'll give you my base. My sure. base knowledge is really weak. Sure. Um, I remember you getting hurt that time. <laughs> But I don't, I remember not being with you when you get hurt. And I don't remember why I wasn't with you. Um, but I remember I was supposed to have been with you. So like,
0: a fault there for me, hundred percent. It's fine. Forgive him. That just left me and the other no H Sarah. We set off. So Sarah was not in the game room, nor was she in the lounge. No sign of her in the atrium and she wouldn't be in the casino. We decided to head to the top deck. That'd be the longest view we had of the ship, and with everything winding down and people heading off to bed after one more late-night stroll, it'd be pretty easy to spot her. So that's where we went, patiently waiting by the rails along the spatula wing bridges, listening to the parallax collapse rip through the Atlantic. Naturally, whom else do we encounter in this fateful moment but the rival? Yuck. My hand clenched a fist around my pen. He'd only cropped up here and there in these insignificant brushes about the parallax collapse as the gang gallivanted from one side or the other. And he was always sneering in that way that only the people you hate the most know how to sneer. This smug twerp was all smug and twerpy because this was the end of the road, wasn't it? The final showdown. He couldn't get what he wanted, but at least after tonight, I'd be denied what I wanted. I was frustrated to be sure, I didn't want to deal with him. I had to find Sarah. I had to give her the note. And that's when his smile curled up the side of his smug, twerpy face. I know where she is, he squawked, And he did it with just a little too much certainty to be dismissed outright, like he accidentally betrayed his own confidence. I wasted my breath trying to appeal to his better angels, that if he wanted to have any shred of personal integrity, he'd accept the situation and just let me know where she was. But alas, nothing. If he wasn't gonna tell me, I'm just wasting my time. I moved to leave when he said, I'll tell you if you can catch me. If I could catch him, of course I could catch him. I was bigger than him. I was stronger than him. I pivoted on the last play of the championship game and forced Nicky Barber into a desperate Hail Mary, which failed. And even if I didn't have any of that on him, I was somebody's boyfriend for a few hours now and everything about that lived up to the hype. Nothing, nothing would stand between Sarah and me. Sure, I said, it's on. And so it was. He took his first step. Then I took a step. Then he picked up the pace. And I matched him. And in the blink of an eye, he bursted into a squirmy sprint. And I planted my foot to catch up. But we were outside on the deck that had just been scrubbed. So I slipped and I fell. And I put my hands down in front of me to break my fall. Meaning, when I hit the ground, the pen I was holding dug into my left There was a flash, black, and white, and fuzzy, a big, spinning, disco move. The rival kept on running, over the bridge and cackling into obscurity, never to be seen again. Thank Christ. I got to my knees, and instinctively, the first thing I felt around for was my Homestar Runner hat. I hit the deck so hard it popped right off. In the entire trip, I think I only ever took it off to sleep, so it felt like my own head had rolled off. But thankfully, the hat didn't get too far. I put it back on, still not able to see out of my eye. I touched it, gingerly. Imagine my relief knowing a pen was not sticking out of me. That said, you ever stub your toe or something and there's that moment, that pause in time when adrenaline's doing its thing, and it doesn't hurt, but like, you know it's gonna... I knew something had happened, something potentially very bad. I know that because, as I stood up, I turned to the other Noage star and I asked, is it bad? And she didn't even say anything. She immediately covered her mouth and started crying. I took that to mean, yeah, it's bad. <laughs> there was blood. A lot of blood. Enough that I had to do something about it, like, immediately. I went back into the heart of the ship into one of the bathrooms, which, like all the elevators on the ship, had these gigantic fucking mirrors. I got a good look at myself with my one good eye, and I was in rough shape. This is kind of funny. There was another guy in the bathroom just minding his own business. He had to have noticed me in the mirror as he was washing his hands, but he looked at me side-eyed and kept it totally cool. Didn't ask me how I was doing, if I needed help. I don't know if he'd seen some shit like this before, but he definitely wasn't about to make it his business. And in retrospect, I respect that. I ain't even mad. Like, imagine you're him. You go to relieve yourself, and then you come out to wash your hands, and here's this child hemorrhaging from his eye. Yeah, no thanks, buddy. Anyway, I was trying to get my hands on some paper towels to try and clean up any blood and stop more from gushing out. Unfortunately, no amount of paper towels seemed to be enough. I just kept bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. At this point, these few minutes in the bathroom alone, three key thoughts dawned on me. The first is that I think I was beginning to regain my sight. I'm surprised at just how cool I was able to keep myself between when I hit the ground and then, because it definitely felt in the realm of possibility that I'd popped my whole fucking eye out of my head, or at least blinded myself. I even cracked a joke at my own expense about that to the other No H. sour on the way down to the bathroom to try and get her to stop crying. It didn't work. This was the point I finally allowed myself to cry. Probably not a coincidence that this is when everything started to really hurt. Bad. The second thing I realized was that I had all these paper towels in my hands, which meant the pen was gone. And so was the note. I'd felt around for my hat, but not the note. I let go of it, and who knows? I can only imagine that it went tumbling off the side of the parallax collapse of the seas, drifting ever aimlessly until it hit the water, eventually finding purchase at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Where it belongs, if we're being completely honest here. I didn't really have time to think too much about the note or sour because the third creeping thought started to emerge. My mother was going to kill me. I don't know if the bleeding stopped, I don't even know if it slowed down, but at some point I left the bathroom and tracked down a crew member in the grand atrium, dripping red droplets onto the obviously just-clean-for-the-last-day white marble. That's when I was informed that the ship's doctors had turned in for the night and were no longer on duty. in all likelihood, sleeping. Any emergency procedure was going to cost $137. I took that off the table right then and there. There was no way I was going to put that cost on my parents. Not because I was chasing down a boy and slipped on the deck in order to get a note to a girl I liked. (laughs) Not happening. Still, at some point I had to return to my cabin. The other Noe H. Sarah, (laughs) bless her, walked me back to my room and wished me luck before we said goodbye. I knocked on my door and as expected, my mom freaked out. (laughs) I can only imagine the hard side it was as I bled tears, confessing the astronomical amount of money it would take to even wake up the doctors. Thankfully, my mom told me not to worry about it and marched me all the way back to the atrium so that the crew member could lead us down to the medical center. There were two doctors, or maybe a doctor and their assistant. I don't know, but they checked me out. They were both from South Africa, and every few seconds they switched to speaking Afrikaans. I'm sure to swear about what an idiot kid I was, getting all busted up and disturbing their holy slumber. My mom made some small talk with Diane Ward as they prepped, and they claimed they dealt with this sort of thing all the time. Well, maybe not this sort of thing specifically, but you know, people walking around late at night, Drunk, hitting their head on God knows what. Luckily, there didn't seem to be any major blasting damage to my eye. What I'd really sliced up and why I was bleeding like a fountain was my eyelid. I needed five stitches. They patched me up in no time and that was it. I took a shower to wash off any blood I missed earlier and slept with a paper towel patch over it in case there was any more bleeding after that. But that's all it was, nothing major. I was fine. And that's generally it, that story. How with mere hours to go before making land back in Florida and going all week without incident, I went and had this big calamitous event. There usually isn't too much more to add to the story. We woke up in Fort Lauderdale and departed the Parallax Collapse with our luggage bags and I didn't see Sour again. We flew home to a chilly New York, and we all got on with our lives. A few days later, I went to the doctor to get the stitches removed. Some way and somehow, Sarah and I were able to find each other online after all. All of us managed to find each other on MySpace, and we kept in touch, even calling each other sometimes. But as both Sarah and I had expected, the distance between us became a bit too hard to maintain. Daily aim chats, it turns out, does not a relationship make. We broke up. That didn't mean contact ended. I still followed an art page she kept online and was absolutely floored by what she created. One day, we all logged off MySpace for the last time and logged onto Facebook. And Sarah and I found each other there, too. There wasn't too much communication, though I did ask her to create some album art for one of the million bands I'd bounced between during high school. And then... Yet again, somewhere along the line, I left Facebook behind and didn't take too much with me. Any trace back to Sarah, and really anyone from that trip besides Eddie was irrevocably severed. That story started to get told at various family get-togethers immediately, and over time, the details were fabricated and forgotten in equal measure, to the point that I think what I just told you was like 85% a true story. I mean, I didn't make anything up, but... I might have sharpened some of the blurrier edges. And you know what, I'll admit it. When it gets told right, it gets a pretty good laugh or gasp from everyone in the gallery. It's not a bad story to have told at your expense. I've got a legion of unhealthy habits. For example, making momentous the innocuous, not unlike creating a big podcast episode about an otherwise straightforward vacation accident. I'll also cop to entertaining grand delusions, but hey, at least in my defense, I'm not delusional about having them. One of my worst habits, however, is my need, my drive really, to complete tasks, to put a bow on things and define a clear ending. So here's the thing. There was always this nagging itch about how I ruined the cruise. Whenever that story got told, someone would inevitably ask, well, did you ever get to deliver the note to Sarah? At which point I'd say what I said a few minutes ago. I didn't even know I let go of it. I reached around for my Homestar Runner hat and then got up and went to the bathroom to try and stop the bleeding. And then I'd add in the bit about how it was probably terrible anyway and with any luck, it went overboard. I was on a mission that night, though. A mission that I woefully failed. The contents of the note didn't even matter, really. Obviously, Sara and I found each other online despite not delivering the note. But it was representative of something larger. Of what, exactly? I don't know. The act of it. I send people letters and notes even now. I like receiving them. The thrill of opening my mailbox and inside, packed between all the bills and all the junk, there's this tiny morsel of someone's soul, proof of their existence that they packed together just for me. Even back then, talk had been reduced to something free, which by definition meant it was cheap. But sending a letter to someone, writing something down in your own handwriting, if it's legible enough, which mine often isn't, and then having to pay to send it, there's a permanence to that. Not just the physical cardstock or the ink, but the moment. I have a shoebox full of letters and even some printed emails that I'll pull out and read, most often in times of crisis, unfortunately. But not once ever in my life have I gone back and reread a text conversation. Am I making the case for some bygone candlelit era or saying there's something inherently better about the antiquated? I'm not, though I'd love to meet the Luddite with the podcast. But reading a letter someone has written for you forces you to slow down, which is not the worst thing to have to do in today's day and age. You have to take in what they have to say and you've got no chance to interject yourself. You see the compromises they have to make because of the limited space, the acceleration to their point as the page's end creeps up. Notes are just a nice, small joy, no more and no less. And I don't care how dumb that sounds. I'm not going to cloak it in irony. Okay, maybe putting all that to that music was a little ironic, but still. And I mean, obviously, I wasn't concerned with all that the night of the trip. And I wasn't able to adequately express that nagging sting from this unfulfilled task for years. My soul was not consumed by this. If anything, it just started as a joke. Reach out to Sour again. Wouldn't that be funny? So there was that and one other thing, a second follow-up question on everybody's mind whenever that story came up. Whatever happened to Sarah? I didn't have any answers. I don't remember exactly when I started to seriously consider writing Sarah a note, a new note. That said, I don't know how serious you'd consider booting up Facebook again. First of all, what a big mistake that was. And, oh yeah, Sarah wasn't on there anymore either. I checked the old ghost town that was JediRanger57 at AOL.com to see if there was some old email address, but just like me, I'm sure she had stopped using the email attached to her screen name forever ago. I remember the name that she used for her art page, but even that had been scrubbed from the internet. I know I wouldn't like to have my old art floating around online. Figured she felt the same. So I didn't put too much more into it than that. A half-hour, half-assed web search. I failed in my mission yet again. But at least it wasn't this abstract entity, right? Like, there was nothing I could do, so there was nothing I could do. If I'd found her, if I'd been able to send her a note, that would have been great. Just the side of a lark. But now? Eh, so be it. I tried. I could stop answering that question with, I don't know, and start saying, couldn't tell you," Which doesn't seem that different, but is. And that's just how it would be. T'was ever thus. You ever get the feeling like you've just read the end of the internet? You've just scrolled through the millionth page or read the millionth tweet, and you're not even processing it anymore? Just loading more and more and more, and how could there be any more beyond that? But there always is. An endless supply of nothing. I'm not proud of myself, but I have my days like this. Days when I'm too exhausted to do anything, and yet it's still this colossus titanic struggle to just melt into sludge on my bed. But I don't blame myself. An object at rest will stay at rest unless acted upon by some outside force. That's just physics. (laughs) A universal truth. And so really... Whom am I to conspire against the laws of the entire universe? While we're speaking of universal truths, let's sidestep to another real quick. One that Aristotle lays out pretty clearly, or perhaps not so clearly, in Poetics, the playbook on how to write a good story. In Poetics, Aristotle says a probable impossibility is preferable to an improbable possibility. Let me say that one more time. A probable impossibility is preferable to an improbable possibility. Perhaps you're like me when I first heard that. Uh, what? But here's what I think he meant. I think he meant that there's a required amount of buy-in for any given story. People, an audience are willing to make these unconscious concessions because they want to experience the grander verve of a good story, right? I forget where I picked up on this example, but think about the warp drives in Star Trek. Space travel is tough and it takes a very, very long time to get from here to that star system all the way across the way there, right? We gotta get to the new planet of the week each week and we don't want to have to age the crew up by years or watch them twiddle their thumbs on the journey in between. So we have the warp drive, an engine that, for all intents and purposes, will zip the Enterprise across the galaxy faster than the speed of light. We just accept it. Traveling faster than the speed of light is impossible, and we will never, ever, ever be able to break that speed limit. But that's not the point of Star Trek. At its core, it's a show about ethics and culture and not the cool tech itself, but the impact of cool tech. That's the meat and potatoes we wanna get to, so like, let's just get to it. Put simply, engage the warp drive. And we can all make that leap. It makes sense as something that exists in the world of the show, even if we know it really couldn't. This is a probable impossibility. Another phrase for it might be the suspension of disbelief. This is a tenuous situation though, a house of cards. And nothing breaks the illusion like introducing an improbable possibility. Spock is a Vulcan. The Vulcans are notoriously logical, and as a consequence, they come off as being very brash, cold, and unemotional. Spock isn't a full Vulcan, however. He's also half-human. So actually, he is capable of showing emotions. But you didn't see that week in and week out on the original series. In fact, you hardly ever saw it. Exploring that side of Spock was usually reserved for big, dramatic moments where he just couldn't hold it together anymore. Perhaps you're familiar with this a little bit.
2: I'm in control of my emotions.
0: Control of my And so it's a little understandable that you'd get dragged out of an episode if he starts showing bits of emotion here and there, when all the other times he's terse and distant if he isn't those things, and you start injecting these inconsistencies into your story, you stop captivating your audience. They're trusting you not to ask too much of them. You break that trust, and you're breaking a fundamental rule of storytelling. All that being said, I still don't know how I can adequately convey the enormity of the story-shattering cascade of quantum events required possibly only on a galactic scale and with an impenetrable exactitude of succession, for me to have been at the very end of the internet when that story was hit with the mother of all impossible probabilities. I saw her name. Sarah. I found her. (laughs) I'd given up. I'd accepted that she was just somebody that I had a nice memory of and a goofy story, and that was it. (laughs) I wasn't ever supposed to cross paths with her again. How could I? I couldn't make this up. Nobody would believe it. That I was able to pull it all together and connect the dots while I was mindlessly scrolling is really a wonder unto itself. I mean, Sarah's name is pretty distinct, but I wouldn't call it uncommon. So initially, like anyone would, I defaulted to the probable impossibility. This isn't her. This is just someone with the same name. Weird, to be sure, but like, it could happen. But get this. I didn't see her name as a part of some username on a forum or on an article's byline. It was in the corner of an image. A comic strip. Already my head was spinning. The Sarah I knew was an artist. (laughs) A good artist. Okay. That's interesting. That could be something, but could also, you know, not. But we're not even at the crazy part yet. The crazy part is that I'd seen this illustration before. Or rather, maybe not this exact one per se, but I'd seen others from this series. I've seen the character at the center of it many, many times over. In fact, I'm sure you have too. I'd go as far to wager that anyone that's been on the internet for five minutes has seen the comic strip called Sarah's Scribbles. Seriously. Google Sarah Scribbles for yourself and take a look. Am I wrong? I've seen the titular character pop up everywhere. She's become a part of the visual language of the internet. I haven't confirmed anything yet, but you're telling me there's a chance the girl I met when I was 12, the girl I got five stitches in my eye over trying to deliver the note, might crop back up after all this time because I just happen to be browsing when I am a thousand pages deep into whatever website and it's in part because she became wildly famous on the internet? What the fuck? Somewhere on a hill in northern Greece, Aristotle was spinning in his grave, perhaps enough to generate the power needed to fuel a warp drive. I pulled out every trick of Google Foo I knew, spending the next few hours furiously trying to figure out if this sour was my sour from that story. I was naturally curious, duh, but there was more to it than that. If I could figure this out, I could wrap a nice bow on that story anytime it got told again in the future. What happened to Sarah? Well, she became unfathomably successful, that's what. And look, yeah, I guess I just know how to pick them, and I'm sorry, but what I have just can't be taught. (laughs) But more than that, more seriously, I could finally scratch that lingering itch that built up and never truly gone away. Not completely. Maybe I could finally get Sarah that note. In this one tiny corner of my life, in this one tiny way, I'd be made whole again. How could I not try? Slowly but surely, the details started to trickle in. Sarah from the Parallax Collapse was in fact the same Sarah behind Sarah's scribbles. So, this was Sarah. Confirmed. Step two, then. I owed her a note. Thus began my new, tricky, quixotic quest. Where to start? Sarah had a website, but there was no contact form. There was an email listed for her agent or her publisher, and for a little while I considered going that route. But pretend with me for a moment how that would have played out. Yeah. Hi. So. Back in the 8th grade, I'm pretty sure I met Sarah on a boat, and after quite a tempestuous turn of events, I busted up my eye, leaving me unable to deliver a note to her, which I'd like to do now in order to satisfy this eye construction my mind has construed for me where I'm required to type all the minor lucents in my life and have a cohesive narrative for this narrative arc my family has perpetuated in perpetuity ever since. You know, by the way, I promise to you, I'm not an actual Looney Tune. Yeah, no. I mean, I probably would have worded it a little different than that, but, yeah. That was out. I needed something direct. Straight to the source. After a bit more scouring, I did manage to find what I believed would have been a way to send a note to Sarah. And look, this wasn't like trying to pinpoint Bin Laden in the middle of Pakistan, but for her own privacy, I'd rather keep the details light. All you gotta know is that I had it. Now. All I needed was the message for the note. The new note. What was I gonna say? I knew what I wanted to write, I wrote it, but I was starting to get a little apprehensive and for a million tiny fucking reasons. Chief among them, what if Sara didn't remember me? That whole business aboard the Parallax collapse and how I ruined the cruise was significant for me, sure. But what if that was just a blip on her radar? What if she'd been on a hundred other cruises, each with their own howering tale of romance and stitches? Part of it, too, I think, was just that... Look, I don't ever need a reason to feel anxious, but let me ask you, have you ever reached out to the first person you ever quote-unquote went out with? There's that cliche, right, that even I referred to before that says two people can be on the same wavelength the same frequency. And you know what? Sarah and I were on the same wavelength. But to extend the metaphor, timing is everything. If your phase is aligned, you constructively interfere. But if it doesn't, then everything's going to cancel out. And don't misunderstand me. I don't mean this in a romantic rekindling kind of way, but just as a person. What if Sarah turned out to be totally different? What if she was exactly the same? Harmless as it may appear, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Like, who was I sending this note to exactly? Put yourself in my position. Going on a cruise and stabbing myself in the eye was by far the most insane shit that has ever happened to me. And now it was only getting all the more batshit. There's no manual out there on what to do in these situations and how to do it well at that. So naturally, I worked myself up and it made me nervous as all. At the same time, I didn't want this to be all for nothing. Just sending the new note out wouldn't be enough. I needed confirmation that it got through. When people asked if I ever managed to deliver the note to Sarah, I wanted to give them a definitive yes. This little unexpected coda decades in the making. Got to a point where the new note sat in my notes app for weeks. I'd convinced myself that she wouldn't see it or respond. And who put this thought in my head? Fucking Aristotle. It might not seem like a big deal, but it was. And I promise, this is really the only way I know how to explain it. You ready for this? Tune in to the start of any given football game on any given Sunday, and you'll hear all the analysts talk about high percentage plays. These aren't plays that teams run a high percentage of the time. Rather, they're plays that have a high chance of being successful. I suppose a question for the philosophers to ponder might be, well, wouldn't you always want to run plays that are going to be successful? And I admit it's hard to beat that logic, but how exactly are we defining success? That's the thing. High percentage football plays aren't about scoring. These are easy plays. They're about gaining some momentum and getting into some kind of rhythm. You get all that going and you're able to take a risk running your low percentage plays. Commentators call this setting the tone. I've run the numbers. In the 2019 regular season of the NFL, the league ran 45,546 plays. That's every snap, tackle, punt. Every pass, every interception. Penalties, safeties, laterals, returns. Every kick and every miss. But here's what I found. There was a strong correlation between teams that were winning at the end of the first quarter and subsequently winning the game. How strong? How's 70% of the time? Now, you're not gonna catch me saying that you only win by winning the first 15 minutes, but if you're likely to win games if you're winning in the first quarter, then I think it's safe to say that you're more likely to win games if you can get everything rolling with your high percentage plays. Here's the rub. High percentage plays, by their very nature, are, not unlike myself, astonishingly unsexy. You're not going to catch them on ESPN or The Red Zone because even if they separate the winners from the losers, they're not highlights. And don't get me wrong, I don't begrudge TV producers for showing what they show because, again, they're bound by the same Aristotelian laws that I am. That we all are. High percentage plays don't make for good TV. You hardly ever score off them because they're purposefully designed not to do so. By definition, then, they are improbable possibilities. What makes for an unrelenting fucking television experience, however, are the probable impossibilities. And football has one of the best probable impossibilities in the world of sports. The Hail Mary. A Hail Mary pass is antipodal to the high percentage play. The quarterback needs not to get sacked, and launch the ball with the pinpoint accuracy of a minesweeper, and hope that one of the wideouts comes down with it over the goal line, all while being surrounded by the meanest, tallest, most athletic troglodytes their opponent has to offer. Everyone knows it's about to happen when it's about to happen. The officials let the players play, and the defense has all the means in the world to break it up, and the offense has every reason to believe that that's exactly what's going to happen. The Hail Mary pass is as low percentage of a play as they come. So staggeringly low that the only shot at success must come at the mercy of, well, divine intervention. They're next to impossible and yet the law of large numbers demands that so long as teams keep trying, every once in a while one of them will actually pull it off. And they do. This. This is what I was dealing with. That I found sour again? Look at how much had to line up, or how many high percentage plays I had to run. I had to have a penchant for writing notes. I had to have this general conviction to follow through on stuff. I had to have days I spent sitting on the edge of the internet. But the situation of that story didn't become untenable until the probable impossibility of Sarah's success entered the fold. I cultivated my life in a way that meant I had just enough wits about me to catch a digital Hail Mary I didn't even know was coming from me. In the context of that story, Aristotle would approve and call this preferable because of its being unbelievable. This would make for a great story, but stories aren't real life. And yet, here I was, standing before the altar of Aristotle and asking for another. I was chucking my own digital Hail Mary back into the black of the internet and asking what, if anything, would come back. Would Sarah come down with the ball? You tell me.
3: Hello.
4: Hey. Okay, I guess my microphone doesn't work.
0: <laughs> Hi. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Sarah got my note, read it, responded. Yeah, it's uh, how have the last fourteen years been?
3: <laughs> <laughs> They've been all right. <laughs>
4: how are you?
0: I'm good. Um, you know, for it's my first pandemic, so you know I'm one more. Right. Pandemic.
4: Same. Yeah. <laughs> um so i'm sarah anderson and i'm a cartoonist i write sarah scribbles and thanks
0: i hate to have made such a big deal about it and i don't mean to be mysterious or secretive honest but what i wrote that was for sarah i was lucky that sarah was able to confirm some parts of what i remembered and added in some gaps i'd forgotten about
4: yeah so i remember we were we were part of like a like a preteen group right Mm -hmm. (laughs) and there was like a little group of I guess preteens that like all became friends and we kind of clicked I think because we both liked like what at the time was like indie music which was like (laughs) which was like the gorillas (laughs) I guess or like what what a 12 or 13 year old thinks is like different and interesting yeah we were all a little bit weird,
3: <laughs>
4: right? Like if I recall, I don't think there was anyone really in the group that was like a cool kid. And I also think that's an age where you really just want to be away from your parents and like establishing friendships and no. You're very slowly entering into like teenhood and adulthood. So I think, you know, for for that age group, it's very different from being like eight or nine where you're still attached at the hip (laughs) with your parents. I think we were like all super excited to like get to know each other and kind of, I don't know, establish more independent identities. And it was, you know, as far as I remember, it was a pretty good group. What else do I remember? I remember another girl liked you. And she was like so earth shattered when she found out <laughs> we were like quote unquote dating. Oh, Lord. Um, which I continue to feel bad about.
0: <laughs> but I remember there was, it was you, me, my buddy Eddie. I think there was another Sarah. And at it first, there
4: was another Sarah.
0: And then I think there was also a Caitlin.
4: That was the girl who liked you too and who was super betrayed. Really? Because wow. like, I
0: think. I thought she and Eddie were a thing, but that goes to show what I know. I
4: don't know. I, I do. I do definitely remember Caitlin not being happy with me. So maybe like at the end, her and Eddie like connected and that made up for it. Yeah. <laughs> my wishful thinking.
0: <laughs> I feel like I have a memory of you playing piano.
4: Oh my god! Really? <laughs> yeah. I don't remember that at all, but I do play piano, so it must be true. (laughs) And back then I was quite good. (laughs) I knew you had hurt your eye later, but I did not know that you were trying to play (laughs) and that you were like chasing down another person. Who was that? Was his name Chris? Was he like a little, like a, a short kid named Chris?
0: I don't remember the name. Okay. But I just, all I remember is that he was very unhappy that <laughs> you and I had become an item in as yeah. much as, you know, as we know.
4: Yeah. I mean, I remember it was like fun and sweet, right? Like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything very like serious or yeah, yeah. dramatic as far as I recall. I remember not being able to say goodbye to you, but I think I did not find out Uh, what happened to your eye until after on AIM instant messenger, which is like, (laughs) which is like ancient history at this point. Um, Yeah, trying to think what else, what else do I remember? Oh my God. I think for like a long time, I called you my first boyfriend. Oh Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, up until I was like 14, 15.
0: Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it, it was one of those actual cases where, you know, I returned to school the next week and I really do have a girlfriend. She just goes to another school.
4: Right. And it was
0: true. Like, and I was like, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, you met her on a cruise in Jamaica. Right. (laughs) Um, Right.
4: I had the same thing. It was like, I, I like returned to school and suddenly had like quote unquote experience dating, (laughs) you know? So suddenly I had some clout because of that cruise. So, So that was cool. then I remember also that we, we did stay in touch. Like, I, I remember that as like part of the sweetness of the whole thing was that we were Facebook friends, you know, after AIM kind of died down, (laughs) we were Facebook friends. And I even drew like, uh, an album cover for you.
0: So, like, that's the story. And so now you, you have it for... Uh, um... Oh, my
4: God. It's a lot more dramatic and cinematic than I think I previously thought, <laughs> uh, which I have a lot of respect for.
0: How about that? That story got the epilogue I so desperately wanted. Sarah and I caught up and... I wish... I wish... I wish that was it. That that was the new ending to that story. But I left something out. A big part of this. A significant detail that cannot be ignored. And it has to do with when I stumbled upon Sarah's comic and saw her name on it. That first time I was doom scrolling. Reddit is one of the largest websites in the world. Easily a top tenner in the United States. The only way I know how to describe it is that it's the community forum website to end all the others where users can post links, photos, GIFs, and comments. The whole website is built on smaller segmented community forums called subreddits, and there's a subreddit for almost everything. Seriously, if you can think it, they have it. There are broad topics, sure, you know, music, television, but maybe you've got a question about personal finance. There's a subreddit for that. Or maybe you've got a question about history, in which case, Ask a Historian is for you. Hell, maybe you just want to pose a question for everyone. You've got one of the largest subreddits at your disposal. Ask Reddit. Reddit also hosts AMAs, or Ask Me Anythings, in which celebrities and other prominent VIPs make themselves available for the common man, and no topic is off limits. How big is their draw? Well, presidents have participated in AMAs. Reddit's not just a place to ask questions, either. Reddit's tagline, after all, is that it's the front page of the internet. So, perfect. There's a subreddit just for the news called News. But maybe you want something with a little more international flair. And for that, we have World News. Or maybe you just want something a little more focused, say, politics. Just subscribe to politics. And we're really only getting started. There's a subreddit for the city you live in, your sexual orientation, what kind of car you drive, pictures of people's guitar pedal boards, Buildings that look evil. Tweets from Scottish people. Far and away, my favorite subreddit is Blunder Years, where people post unflattering photos of themselves from their childhood. You know, not exactly how they choose to be preserved on Polaroid these days, but it's all in good fun. What makes Reddit one of the world's biggest websites isn't only that it's a hub for every group imaginable, it's that the cream always rises to the top. Reddit is built on a simple voting system, Every post, every comment can be upvoted or downvoted. In most cases, the most informative, quippy, persuasive, succinct content consistently rises to the top. Reddit is so big that there are some communities that have subscribers in the millions. A post in one of the most popular subreddits can generate tens of thousands of upvotes, and once that message or photo or whatever hits a certain threshold, it heads somewhere else. There's one overlord subreddit if you can call it a subreddit at all, called, well, All. Imagine monitoring all the traffic, from the smallest group to the most bloated default subs, converging in one location. That's what All is. At any given time, All will show what content is getting the most upvotes from across the entire website. Exposed to everyone, this is when content can skyrocket. This is the metaphorical front page. Most often, it's just the place I go to after I've burned out on all my personalized content, everything I chose to see. This is where I was, in the middle of an all-crawl, when I saw Sarah's comic. Maybe you've seen this particular strip from Sarah's Scribbles. It's called Up We Go. I get that explaining a visual thing on a podcast is not ideal, so maybe your best bet is just to Google it, but maybe you can't cause you're driving or more likely you just can't be bothered. So I'll do my best to describe it anyway. There are five panels, two rows of two that read left to right, top to bottom, and one final centered panel beneath them. In the first panel, the one on the top left, Sarah, the character, is taking a sip of coffee and says, this coffee will raise my productivity levels. In the next panel on the right, Sarah says, up we go, as a gray box appears beneath her. Next panel. The narrow gray box gets longer with arrows pointing in the up direction. The fourth zooms out, revealing the narrow gray box to be the bar of a bar graph. It continues to climb. The graph has a legend that reads, anxiety. The final panel at the bottom shows a stressed, regretful Sarah. She says, in all caps, Wait. No. Now, there's no better way to ruin a joke than to explain it, but I feel like I have to, and you'll see why in a minute. But it's pretty straightforward, right? Drinking coffee makes people jittery and anxious. You might expect that there's a comic subreddit, and there is. The subreddits for that and art, digital art, illustrations. But none of those were the subreddits Sarah's comic was posted to. The reason being that it actually wasn't one of Sarah's comics. And now that I've come to this part of that story, I'm realizing I need to make an amendment to what I just said. There is a better way to ruin a joke than to merely explain it. I'd like to stop for a second and just offer a general content warning. Really from here on out. See, the post that I saw rising in all didn't start with Sarah the character saying, this coffee will raise my productivity levels. Instead, her little word cloud read, these refugees will raise our diversity levels. Again, a gray box appears and it continues to grow through the second and third and fourth panels. But when we finally get a glimpse of the graph, the legend no longer reads anxiety. Anxiety has been replaced with rape the final panel remains unchanged. UNICEF calls the civil war in Syria the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. The conflict started in March 2011, but not until May, when the first to flee reached Turkey, did the refugee aspect of the crisis begin in earnest. A temporary camp, the Za'atari camp in Jordan, opened the following year and today, today, holds over 70,000 refugees. Within three years, the number of Syrian refugees worldwide increased into the millions. Many looked for safe shores far beyond their home, to Europe and North America, and included among them was the toddler Aylin Kurdi and his family. Like those first Syrian refugees, Aylin's family were in Turkey, Their ultimate goal was to make it to their relatives in Canada. Their direct appeals were met with bureaucratic fumbles though, after which Aylin's father acquired four seats on a five meter wide boat by paying nearly six grand. The boat, which is a charitable description really, it was an inflatable raft, but this boat was designed for eight people, though 16 were crammed aboard it when it capsized a few minutes after leaving Bajram, Turkey. The Syrian civil war had been in the news since it began, sure, but as tends to happen, it was just another conflict a world away, happening to a number of people that was just statistically unfathomable. It wasn't a priority here in the US, not a major one. Not until the photos of Aylin's lifeless body emerged, scrunched up on the beach's wet sand. Did the story come to the absolute forefront here and abroad? That was in September of 2015. The refugee crisis, which, again, let's be clear, is still occurring, would sustain as a major news headline for at least the next two years or so. My home borough, Staten Island, is known for several reasons. To much of the world, I'd wager we're best known by our ferries, our bright orange fleet that connects passengers from Lower Manhattan and Lower Manhattan to us. And the reason the larger world knows about the ferry is due to the fact that it is the best, at least if we're defining best as being freest, way for tourists to view and take photos of the Statue of Liberty, much to the chagrin of local commuters. Most daily riders don't even offer a brief glance at the statue as they pass, and long gone are the days when Lady Liberty served her near-mythological duty, welcoming waves upon waves of immigrants as they arrived at Ellis Island. A bronze plaque hangs inside the Statue of Liberty's pedestal containing The New Colossus, a poem by Emma Lazarus, herself an activist for Jewish refugees. I'm sure you've heard the poem's most quoted section. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. But I've always loved the penultimate line the best. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. Mostly for using the hyphenated Tempest Toss, which is now the name of my band, but also because, you know, it reaffirms the obligation I have as an American. Not codified in any law, per se, but morally. To make my home a place of, well, refuge. Send these to me. And that holds especially true as a New Yorker. My best friend Stephen put it best once, right? Like, I can't go to London and become a Londoner, and most of the world is like that. But anyone in the world from anywhere can come to New York and become a legit New Yorker. We might be unique in that regard and we don't take it for granted. Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised then when calls to fulfill that obligation throughout the United States were hampered in November 2015, after nine terrorists attacked Paris, France. The initial fear, which of course subsequently morphed into blame, was that the attack had been coordinated by Syrian refugees. Putting aside for a moment the absurdity of pinning a terrorist attack on people that were themselves the victims of and fleeing terrorism, this claim turned out to be patently false. None of the attackers were refugees, or even Syrian for that matter. Seven of them were radicalized Europeans, and the two others were believed to have been Iraqi. And the problem arises with those last two. It seems that they exploited the refugee migration in order to make their way into Europe. That was all the justification 31 governors, all but one of them Republican, needed to declare that they'd block any admission of Syrian refugees into their states. And you know what? Speaking as a New Yorker, I can understand reasonable concern over terrorism. But what I cannot stand is the hypocrisy of these governors. These craven, ghouls that were or are the same types that happily tell us ad nauseum that america is the greatest period nation period ever period they don't actually believe that though do they because if they were true you'd think that there was no challenge we couldn't possibly rise to meet i mean surely there must have been a gap A space between impeding the access of bad actors while also making sure the likes of Aileen Curry could have been welcomed as our newest citizens with as little friction as possible. I mean, really, was this it? This was the thing that finally stumped America? The only thing we had at our disposal was to shut it all down? Really? I'm not so naive. That's not what it was about. They didn't like the people. It's the people they don't like. And in 2016, they weren't even trying to telegraph their message rely on their old codes. Head clown at the Florida Circus Jeb Bush said, We should focus our efforts as it relates to refugees on the Christians that are being slaughtered. Or put another way, send these homeless tempest-tossed to me. You know, so long as they believe in the same God and have the same color skin and aren't, like, so poor. And why do they always talk so funny all the time, too? They just don't like the people. The alt-right didn't feel the need to hide behind whatever laughable rhetoric the Republican governors did. Who knows for sure when in 2016 they started altering Sarah's art. But by the end of the year, she issued this tweet. Some people have been editing my comics to display white supremacist texts. I'm blocking and reporting as I see them. Please do the same. The comic I saw was not the only one they changed. Appropriated. And Sarah is of course just one person. Even with all her followers, it'd be impossible to stamp out every last cockroach. I don't think I saw what I saw on Reddit for another year, year and a half. There's the rational side of me that knows not to engage, and there's a million reasons not to, and that's usually a good instinct to follow. But once I've seen something like that, I don't know. It occupies me. I have this other horrible habit of letting this stuff fester in my mind for hours, trying to bridge an impossible distance. Like, on the most basic level, it's just like, why go after Sarah? She makes a clever comic about the experiences of emerging adults and how all the daily absurdities we witness might actually be what brings us together. I do not like that. I do not like Sarah. There's nothing she could have possibly done to deserve any of this. Nothing. But of course, it goes deeper than that. The next stage. Like, I don't understand. I just don't understand. Do they think that immigrants won't have the work ethic to make it in America? Because when they altered Up We Go, they did a pretty shit Photoshop job. Do they think that the refugees are going to be criminals? Because they were the ones to redistribute copyrighted material. And what matchless monolith of American culture were they trying to maintain that Syrians might infringe upon? They were the ones that couldn't even develop their own propaganda. They resorted to using someone else's art and their repugnant punchline. Don't even get me started on the hypocrisy of claiming the people fleeing for their lives would have trouble with consent. Sarah did not sign off on any of this, on having her art co-opted with a message of hate. These are the acts of cowards, shielded by anonymity in order to perpetuate their xenophobic white supremacy, which is why they only ever reside in the most decrepit corners of the internet. I'm sure one day, they'll reside in hell. That's one of their goals. Maybe the goal, what just happened. They do what they do to try and get people to lose their cool, their composure. And what I did is referred to as feeding the troll. Abandoning my better angels to stoop down to their level. An act that really only takes acknowledging what they say at all, as if it holds any merit. So, yep, they got me. I've been owned. Whatever. Thankfully, that's only the small part. The larger part, obviously, is that they clearly targeted Sarah. And this sort of thing doesn't just happen either. This was coordinated.
1: Uh, I'm in school now. I got, um, going for my MSW. I know it's a trending topic, right? Like, mm-hmm. black empowerment, but it's not really a trending topic for this guy. It's kind of been an issue for this guy for, like, since Trayvon Martin wholeheartedly. Uh, not trying to get too political, because that's not... No, what please,
0: doing. please. You would be surprised. You okay. would be surprised. Um... So this is what they did to it. Something else, huh? How fucked up is that? Uh,
1: unfortunately... I'm very familiar to it. You know, when you're desensitized to everything like that, that's where I'm at right now, man. That fits Uh, right into everything you see from uh, one side.
0: What do you think is the mindset of these people? Like, I'm not asking you to to imagine yourself as a white supremacist, but like...
1: So that's the thing, right? So I'll start right there. We couldn't. I I, I couldn't sit here and be like, so if I was a white supremacist, so we're good people, there's real evil out there, right? Uh, And the real hate that I don't necessarily hold within me, I couldn't imagine myself being someone like that, right? So I also, I get the idea of why they're in so much hate, but I couldn't feel the same way they feel. Like, I get racism, but I inherently don't get racism. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? Like, I get your superiority complex and people thinking that, uh, or you thinking other people are inferior. I get the idea of that. I just don't understand how someone could feel that exactly.
0: And so this this cute little comic about, you know, productivity and coffee and how coffee makes you anxious or being more productive. Like mental
1: health, yeah, like mental health awareness. Like it's very, very sweet for sure. Yeah. Obviously and but you see that all the time. You just see it so often. And I'm sorry that she's a part of it. I, I what what do people like Sarah do to fight that?
4: Well, it's terrible. Um, I I obviously stand for pretty much the complete opposite of what that group of people has tried to make me out to be. And I think what a lot of people do see is that it's like a deliberate attempt to mimic me enough so that people think it is me. And I obviously condemn them and despise them. <laughs> um, no,
0: yeah, of course. Uh,
4: yeah. You know, it's been very difficult, but it also is in a weird way, not personal, because it's part of a larger problem within not just web comics, but women existing online. Yeah. Um, and not even just women, many people of, I guess what you could call marginalized identities. On a personal level for me, and and this has been relevant, obviously, in our politics recently. Is that I would like to see stricter guidelines and a lot less toleration of white nationalism and alt right and alt right adjacent movements from sites like Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I see no reason why why it should be tolerated. I consider them obviously to be hate groups and. Um, for some of them, terrorist groups as well.
0: So. And that's what really stuns me. How do you build a community around something like this? It just feels like an unanswerable question.
5: Wow, there's so much in, in, I, that, yeah. in that question.
0: <laughs> to help try and make sense of all this, I reached out to Casper Cherkyle, co-host of the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text podcast and author of his newly released book, The Power of Ritual, Turning Everyday Activities into Soulful Practices.
5: I feel like there's two things that i want to say. One is the question of what do we build a community around? Is it building a community around mutual love and appreciation and upliftment and a shared passion? Um, Or is it a community built around fear and hatred and, you know, not being them makes us us? Um, And Paul Bourne has a great book called Deepening Community where he makes the distinction between shallow communities that are often built around mutual fear and deep communities which are around shared love. And I think that's so true with with hate groups is that you can see incredible bonding. You can see incredible mutual commitment and powerful ritual, right? Like it's not like those things that are kept exclusively for groups that we admire, right? You can see that very, very intentionally in hate groups. Um, but so often their core identity is about being afraid of something or afraid of someone in a way that becomes incredibly destructive. And so that, that's one thing to talk about. The second element is technology. Yeah. Um, and again, technology can be used for good or ill, right? It's yeah. not inherently uh, set out to, uh, to, to destroy or, or enrich us. I think one of the ways in which the internet has um, been dangerous is that it allows people to build power and connect around very destructive um, ideas, white supremacy being one, and, right. and that people who maybe would not have easily found one another can, can find each other. Now, on the other hand, right, it's also the place in which, you know, as someone who's 14 and is trans can find other people to connect exactly. with and feel yeah. like they're not alone. And so, once again, it's <laughs> ritual community technology. They're not just yeah. good or not just evil. They, they can be used by both. And I mean, I, I think of people like um, Dylan Maron, who created this beautiful project, Conversations with People Who Hate Me, mm, where he yeah. found people online who had said really horrific things to him or, or uh, later to other people and he brought them into conversation. And what happens nearly every time is is this sense of a personal relationship melting away, some of that kind of embittered Im- 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 hatred or that you know, off the cuff, nasty remark. Right. Um, and so sometimes what's, I think, challenging is that we don't have the, the friction of relationship to mediate the conversation, right. um, or we think that no one will hear us, and so we're just joking, or we're going a little further than we would, um, and so, yeah, it, it, I, I think a lot about how the internet has created a lot of frictionless communication, but actually, we need the friction of yeah. relationship to, to, to not let those things spin out of control. Yeah. I think the thing that's dangerous and perhaps the, the the thing to come out of this is when institutional power online amplifies, supports, or encourages the kind of hate-based community um, that we know is so destructive. And I think Facebook is in the middle of this as one as right. example, is um, not standing up against hate speech in ways that, that, that it should.
4: I guess I really wish that I had been heard by Twitter. It's sort of this thing of like, how many times do I need to reveal that I am being attacked and traumatized and my phone number is leaking and all of this and I'm bearing my soul to you and asking for help and I'm getting silence and I'm getting they are allowed to do this. It's sort of an interesting thing because a lot of people don't realize that it is kind of like deliberately tolerated. So like in places like Germany's Twitter sphere there are heavier regulations and they are applied there and then yep. lifted. Uh, for the states. And, you know, there's, there's an interesting, like, quote, unquote, free speech argument in all of this, where, you know, it's like, the right to speak versus the right to have a platform. And then I think something that has been getting lost for a long time is that when they are allowed to exist, many, many people of all kinds of identities are silenced. I have been silenced by them. There's many things and many stories I have not told because Mm -hmm. of them or am unable to speak about freely because Mm -hmm. of them. And again, I I look at myself and I'm like, I am a cisgender heterosexual uh, white woman. And it has been this bad for me. I can't even imagine like the many, many groups of people that have just been silenced and frightened away from using their voice and um, like I was saying earlier, it's not even when people are speaking politically. It can be people just existing. So I I would like to see some of the, the companies step up as well.
0: The altered version of Up We Go was masquerading around Reddit as if it were merely political humor. Once it hit all, all did its thing and all bets were off. Reddit is no stranger to controversy. The first time I remember even hearing about the website at all was when Anderson Cooper did a major profile on a subreddit called Jailbait, which, thank Christ, was eventually banned. They've made attempts not only to clean up their act, but take a better stance on what kind of company they want to be. In fact, in the course of writing this, they've banned over 2,000 subreddits. Not because of any free speech concerns. This comes because they didn't fit the criteria for Reddit's amended content policy, the first rule of which now reads as follows. Remember the human. Reddit is a place for creating community and belonging, not for attacking marginalized or vulnerable groups of people. Everyone has a right to use Reddit free of harassment, bullying, and threats of violence. Communities and users that incite violence or that promote hate based on identity or vulnerability will be banned. Before they nuked these most recent subreddits, they'd implemented a quarantine feature making it harder for people to access fringe communities. Three years ago, they made a secondary all-like overlord subreddit called Popular, which filters out extreme content and allows users to narrow the scope of what they're exposed to. Anyway, I'm not here to defend the website. They can do that for themselves. But I mention all this because, I don't know. It's one of those situations where, yeah, it's great we're planting a tree today, but the best time to have done that was 20 years ago. Reddit felt like the Wild West in the months leading up to the election in 2016. Alt-right groups would routinely conspire to get four, five, six posts to the top of all. And again, we're talking about a top ten website, the front page of the internet. If you're able to hijack that, then you're able to dictate the political discourse across the web. I have a hunch most people have at least a passing awareness of the effect of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. And to this day, Twitter serves as the mouth of Sauron. But I don't know if we'll ever really know what exact role or what influence those alt-right subreddits had on shaping the outcome of that election. To go unchecked at that critical moment had consequences, many of which we're still contending with today. And what gets lost are, once again, the incalculable number of individuals it affects. And they're no less real. You can probably imagine the gamut of thoughts and emotions and questions that were going through my head when I first saw the altered comic. The shock of seeing the name of this person from my past and the confusion of seeing it attached to this racist bullshit. There was all of maybe five microseconds before I realized she had no part in it, which was good news for me to be sure, but it doesn't take away from what she had to deal with or help what she still has to deal with. At the end of August 2018, Sarah tweeted this.
4: I have not talked much about this publicly, but now seems like the right time. Two years ago, I underwent a targeted harassment campaign so severe that I almost quit comics. I saw firsthand how fear and intimidation can silence artists. I did manage to write some political comics since then, some of which are the proudest of my career. However, in a very real way, the harassment stifled me and prevented me from being who I want to be. And although this continues to affect me, I have seen that the new comics world is ultimately a stronger force. Support from other artists means the world to me. Brilliant and inspiring work is being made every day by diverse creators with fresh perspectives. I still often feel I'm not outspoken enough, but I'm still here making work I'm proud of. And other artists are not going anywhere either, and for that I am so thankful. It's not always easy, but change is happening. Keep drawing, my friends. For me, I very quickly realized how not alone I was in this. There's, there's people doing the work. There's a book called Crash Override by Zoe Quinn that sort of like analyzes a lot of the systems that enable it. A YouTuber who I really like, who talks a lot about some of these issues is Francesca Ramsey. I discovered her basically when this all started happening to me. And so I think, you know, that's a good resource to point to because there's many people that have been more vocal and Mm -hmm. um, have, I think, clearer answers. And Riley J. Dennis as well on YouTube. I think she has an entire video about like what YouTube can do to prevent harassment. But, you know, it really was a wake-up call for me that the internet is not a safe or welcoming place for many people and even people who are just sort of like trying to exist like my my work is definitely like feminist and what I would call progressive but it's not necessarily about those things so I I was kind of targeted uh, for no reason and Mm -hmm. that's many people when I see some of the the more organized attempts to combat these groups or, or take them down. Like, I feel like, Oh, you know, at last I I see something kind of working and yeah, I I think it's important for people to condemn and speak up. You know, I I really just want to make people feel at ease with themselves and, um, and comfortable with who they are.
0: This isn't some vague issue. This isn't confined to some far corner of the world. This is the reality of the internet. And if only, if only it was confined there too. All right, we're in the home stretch. The term home stretch comes from the game of baseball, where, after you turn past third base, you have 90 feet between you and. No, I'm just kidding. In fact, I don't even know if that's true I just made that up But here it is The home stretch. I've mentioned it like Half a dozen times now I'm from Staten Island And we've got quite a reputation, right? A laundry list of did you knows I talked about our orange ferry boats early But by far and without debate Our highest collective cultural achievement Was itself a collective The Wu-Tang Clan And let me tell you They ain't nothing to fuck with There's some mob history here, sure. Perhaps you've heard about how Mayor de Blasio murdered the fucking groundhog at our zoo. Yeah, he fucking dropped our groundhog on Groundhog's Day, and it fucking died. Rest in peace, Charlotte. So yeah, for anyone keeping track, we've all hated de Blasio long before it was cool. We famously had a dump, and we've desperately tried to rebrand ourselves as the Borough of Parks, which sounds lovely. I, personally, am trying to lead a campaign to get us known for our inexplicable turkey problem. There's a hospital on the North Shore called North, and they are overwhelmed with wild turkeys. And you'd better watch out if you ever encounter them. The Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with, yes, but you know who the Wu-Tang Clan doesn't fuck with? The wild turkeys. But more than all that, what Staten Island is known for his. Well, let me break it down like this. In the 2016 election, the Bronx went 88% for Clinton. Brooklyn went 79% for Clinton. Manhattan, 86% for Clinton. Queens went 75% for Clinton. Staten Island, we went 57% for Trump. And that might all sound funny or silly or quaint, but it's not. The culture here is such that on July 17th, 2014, it was possible for an officer to chokehold a man to death for resisting arrest after being accused of selling loose cigarettes. His name was Eric Garner, and despite his murder, his final words, his plea that he could not breathe, have not only reverberated throughout the world, but have also, unfortunately, been echoed by other black men and women across the country. know, I wanted to tell that story for a long time. I thought about it, how to do it in a way that was compelling and in the right format, and hopefully I've accomplished at least that much. But I never knew if I had a good reason to tell it, at least not until now. See, after George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis, protests broke out here in New York. Footage from the other boroughs went viral on Twitter, but there were also Black Lives Matter marches planned for Staten Island. And when they were, the South Shore of Staten Island showed itself not to be so ideologically different from those groups that targeted Sarah. Not at all really, except that they didn't hide behind the anonymity of the internet. Not until a march in favor of acknowledging the lives of one of the most marginalized groups in our society did the South Shore decide that they needed to coordinate on Facebook in order to form a militia. I'm not kidding. This wasn't the work of some fringe internet net jobs And this wasn't the governor of some state I'm never going to go to anyway These were my neighbors And all of this has just been I don't know I've been home stretched So that's what this is A chance to witness this Ask how we got here and what our next steps are to amplify others. And this is the best way I know how to do that, through these weird stories and moments through my life. And then I'm going to try and pull it all together in episode three, the big finale. Will I stick the landing? Doubtful, but let's see. For now, how did Staten Island get like this? I'll take a look at that next time in episode two. I fucked up big time, or I'm finding perfect goodness. I hope to see you then. In the meantime, please go check out Sarah's new book, Fangs. It's out now everywhere and it's right up my alley. And while you're at it, Casper's book, The Power of Ritual, is out now too. Casper also did the recording for the audiobook version. That's what I got and it's great. I'll put links to everything in the description. Finally, there's that modern adage that states that anything that gets posted to the internet lasts forever. Things can be copied, downloaded, screenshotted, tweeted, retweeted, reblogged, catalogued, and on and on. But like most maxims, it's not always true. So I've tried to find as many old photos from the cruise vacation as I could. If you want to take a look, head over to the website. There's also some links to the books and other media mentioned throughout this episode, as well as any tidbits that couldn't or just didn't make it into this episode. And man, imagine being the thing that didn't make it into an episode this long. All right, that's it then. See ya.
3: Hail Mary Digital by Brian Buchanan.
2: Mixed by Nick Pittman and mastered by Ian Pritchard. Special thanks to Aaron Janicic, Steve Zimmer, Jason Roshback, Alex Cadwell, Brian McCann, Angelica Bomundo, Cole Rice, Stephen Backus, and me, Kayla Elder. Shout out to Sarah Anderson and Casper Turkile. Intro and outro music by On Pink. Additional music provided by Stockholm Blush, Collector-Emitter, Chronophile, Sean Gold, Lincoln Mayorga, Mike Maldarelli, Joe Ippolito, Ross Fish, and Curious Volume. Scheherazade by rimsky korsakov was performed by David Nolan, Enrique Batiz, and the Philharmonia Orchestra, and was provided courtesy of Naxos of America Incorporated. Up She Rises and Classic Battle by Sam Spence were provided courtesy of APM Music. Promotional material provided by Marissa Soto. Additional material provided by James Yarozynski and Marquise Pickering. For more information, please check out our website at brianbuchanan57.com. That's Brian with an I... Buchanan like the president and 57 like the ketchup bottle. Hail Mary Digital is a co-production between Fat Jewel and Star Command Audio Solutions. Later
3: stranger.